podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto Locust Walk on a gorgeous, finally gorgeous, going to be warm spring day here in Philadelphia. This is Cade Massey hosting with my buddies and faculty colleagues, collaborators, co-creators of Wharton Moneyball, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. Good morning, gents. Good morning. How are you doing? Real doing good fine. Morning. Doing Beautiful fine. Day. Beautiful day, my Bike God. Then. Extravagant. Extravagant. <laughs> We're going to be here for two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning for two hours, 8 to 10 Eastern. You can join the conversation. We wish you would. Give us a shout, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. One of the best ways to reach us if you're listening one of the times it's replayed. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern, you're hearing a replay. We do that four or five times over the course of the week. You can still reach out. You can email us during the show, though, too. Maddie Datz, producer, standing by for your calls and emails. You can tweet at us. We're on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet periodically about all things sports analytics. You can follow the world that way as well. We have two guests coming up today. We have This is a show I look forward to all year round because Jeff Cedar is in. Jeff Cedar, the horse trainer. Horse picker. Horse picker, and not not in the level of for, of picking during the race, picking when they're born, picking when they're uh, after born. about a year old. This is some serious horse analytics, which is like a year before they race. Yeah, about that. They okay. are animals, right? <laughs> we right. got the Kentucky Derby coming up this Saturday, so we'll talk to Jeff a little bit at the bottom of this hour. Then top of the next hour, Mita Nadakumar, PhD student. No, no, not a PhD undergraduate, student. Undergraduate student here at Wharton, but you have reasons to listen. She just seems like a PhD student. Exactly. Because she's on top of everything, man. We hear all kinds of raves about Namita, and she has been working already at an early age in professional sports on the analytics side of things. And we have Namita in studio an hour from now. Between now and then, open lines. You guys give us a ring. I'm curious, Shane Adi. What in the world of sports has caught your eye? Well, I've done a lot of watching. I, it's a it's a transformative time for me, and you might you guys might, re, might remark Tra- in the good. sense that I've I, I used to watch I the read a lot of sports. The butterfly coming but, out of the cocoon, but as uh, we speak. but I have been watching. I've been watching a lot of basketball, um, which has been entertaining. It's probably entirely based on fair weather fandom, right? So it's uh, I wouldn't have watched the Sixers in a million years as they were tanking year after year. But it's it's great to watch. I've been watching the Sixers. I watch a little bit of the Cavaliers because it's, it's entertaining. Well, real quickly, what was your take on how Game One with the Celtics went? Well, it it didn't go well, and but, and but, but why? Uh, apparently, they couldn't shoot. I mean, that was, oh, the, that's was sort of the sh- obvious reason. I think they were they were four for twenty five or something ridiculous from the three point uh, line, which is just at least a standard deviation and a half, maybe two standard deviations from what they should be. So you could just argue straight old bad luck. Yeah, that's it, right? It, it seemed it seemed the parts that I saw it seemed like the Celtics were hitting an unusually high percentage, yes, of their yeah. shots. and that's usually how it goes. 
Why would it go that way? Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, when there's a when there's a, a big gap between the two teams, oh. one probably was slightly on the good side and the other slightly on the bad oh, side. I see. It's much better. It's much more likely for that rather than one team just being horrible. But right. in this case, one team. Was one. Horrible. I mean, they weren't insanely plus, horrible. Plus they were. The they were bad. And the other other team, one was plus, one was negative. I mean, I think the I think the, the Sixers were more negative than the uh, Sixers. The the Celtics were good. Do you believe that this experience thing matters? No, and I don't. Thing? No, there's only one thing that matters. You have LeBron or you do not have LeBron. <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing that well, actually that matters. I mean, we can talk about round. experience, you know, kind of mattering in a series that doesn't involve LeBron, I guess, like this one. But so, so let's 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 transition. <laughs> I so, mean, we know what's going to happen in the end, guys, right? Or, uh, I don't. going to win, and they're going to he's going to go to the finals. <laughs> then are you bet? Are you betting because the because the Cavs are way out in terms of the forecast? What do you mean? Not to make the finals. Not to make the finals. Not to make the finals, and of course, not to win the finals. So well, we, winning the finals, I don't. I, yeah, I don't know about that. But, um, what, but what, so they they should be. At, at, what are they, what are their odds to make the finals? So um, are I they don't the have least them, favorite team. They are the, the least four? favorite team in the of four. the four. Yeah, that's insanity. Shane is on the LeBron bus, man. He's well, dri- he's you know, it's been a it. bus no, actually, that's no, been I running think, for seven seasons now. Yeah, but so. people have been stepping off that bus. Apparently, I know, apparently I know, Vegas I know. It's, it's, off well, the, I, the Celtics were Eventually, the worst. I'm going to be wrong. Maybe this, this is I, the year. I, I believe the Celtics were the, were the least likely, but now that they've beaten Sixers in the first game, I think that's crossed. But we should check that. But but okay. the Cavs are definitely the unliked team of the okay. four in the East. Okay, what about you? You you think that's correct? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I I'm I do think it's. It's hard to argue against LeBron, right. especially when you're well, looking at him like that. He always that, really. gives me. He and, always wins. And you know, and as a forecaster, you get you really have two choices. You can try to build a story that fits the current data, yep. or you can simply go with a very simple, simplest forecast from the past, yep. and just do a simple counting stat. And the simple counting stat from the past from the past has that you're right. Go with LeBron. The story is no, can't be. The, the the Cavaliers are not good. Of course, that's what makes it fun. You have to blend these things, and yeah. picking the right mix is you know <laughs> the, our, the yeah, whole yeah, thing. Yeah. So, what about Curry coming back from injury, finally playing a little six man action in their opening game win against the Pelicans? You yeah, know, that's that, a, no, that's impressive. I, I I mean, just that he's come back so soon, and it's going to add to a team that's already rolling. To be honest. Um, yeah. Again, I, I I think it's going to be probably Golden State and Cleveland at the end. I mean, right Again. now, it's, uh, um, I mean Houston. I think Houston Houston, and, Houston versus Golden State is going to be more competitive really, um, yeah. finals than oh, the one we're looking forward to. That That's, yeah, that, that is considered the finals. The odds are, I think, uh, uh, plus one ten for for uh, and versus plus one fifteen. For the Rockets, it's, it's just I agree. A whoever heat, comes out of that finals that is probably going to be pretty heavily favored so, so, in the actual finals. So, by the way, before we leave the East, Matt has fed us the odds after last night. Yeah, we we have the Sixers at plus two hundred, Cavs at plus two twenty, Raptors at plus two forty, and the Celtics at plus six fifty. So they're After they're way night? bad, huh? I don't, I don't wow, quite, that, I don't, that's not. Uh, I'm surprised at that. I guess. All right. I, I guess people saw them win. By a little bit, despite having. The I mean, kind people of, saw what LeBron did, and he. But they does, this, does the same thing every year, we, which is we, win games for the, his team. The point is, they have the Sixers more likely than the Celtics, yeah. and not by a little bit to win. That's the a little East, bit shocking, I guess. Even at being down one zero, that doesn't feel right at all. 
Right. I mean, Especially because they down don't have LeBron. I mean, people okay. should notice that. Okay. I'm, all right. Only I won't one. belabor the point. But, yeah, no, that is a little bit surprising, mm-hmm. actually. All right. Other than NBA. Are, Shane, are you paying attention to hockey yet? Yeah. You're the hockey of man. Of course. You, you say this, and I'm not, I'm not sure I believe it. It's like okay. a, have you you're watched just responding like a Canadian. Sp- of course yeah, I'm watching hockey. Yeah. Have, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm watching hockey. Yeah. I watched Game 7 Toronto-Boston, for example, oh, which was yeah. amazing. Well, didn't Boston just what, they like five one or something? It was a big four one. It was. It, I mean, it was. It was not. I mean, it, explain that it in was terms more of standard deviations. Four one five one. Is that like what is that a blowout? A five one. I can't. Uh, my God, yes. And hockey, okay, sure. A five one is a blowout. Yeah, okay. definitely, definitely. I mean, I mean, most not as much as soccer, but but right. but still quite a bit. Because five one. I mean, I mean, is a close I, game. I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> at this. This is not something that I've actually studied, but I'm guessing that like you know, mo- like probably a. You know, something like at least a third to somewhere between a third and a half of uh, playoff hockey games are decided by a goal. Okay. And then, like, you know, two thirds or two goals or, or so less. So, four goal differential. Yeah, so, four goal differential is enormous. Blowout. Yeah. Well, I mean, enormous. It's I'm going like... to collect this data just for just for informational yeah. purposes. Yeah. I like well, to you know. You can these always things. turn around and use them in class. I, will. I mean, I'm, specifically, I'm subsetting by kind of playoffs versus yeah. regular season. You see more blowouts in the regular season because there's more. Uh, but by definition, hockey and soccer, they're not clumpy games. You, in baseball, you can ex- you explode, and therefore, 5 1 could be a very close game because someone scored four runs. Oh, in their no, last that, day. that can happen so, in hockey as well. It can get, you know, out of hand. For example, as, as one just, you know, this won't explain four goals, but as you know, there's there there are structural things that make sort of like a couple right. goals at the end of the game more likely, like they pull the goaltender and stuff like that. So that's something. We're, hopefully, we'll talk with about about with Namita because yeah. teams are doing this now. This is like the yeah. analog oh, thing in hockey yeah. Yeah. is that they're pulling you know, it like a lot it's like, earlier. It's kind of the analog mm-hmm. to the shift. Yeah, in that in that it's this weird thing that's noticeably changing because yes. of analytics. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so. Right. I, I mean, a lot of teams, I think um, the Colorado Avalanche a few years ago were kind of trendsetters, and Patrick uh, Waugh, who used to be a you know Hall of Fame goaltender, became uh, you know kind of manager of the Colorado Avalanche, and he was really pushing this sort of pull, pull the goaltender early thing. That, Apparently backed up by analytics. But yeah. Waugh was never an analytics-savvy guy. He wasn't pro-analytics. No, no, so no. Interesting. No, that's right. And it he must have come idea. from his experience as a, as a goaltender. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I had probably some intuition as a goaltender that then was kind of, you know, kind of, he well, saw the analytics that confirmed whatever confirmed he wanted what to do thought. anyway. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. Well, maybe we'll, Which we'll is how analytics, I think, breaks its way into, like, new sports or sports where it's not as you, you conventional. Need this, you need this kind of, You either need yep. to get lucky or you need to get someone who's got an intuition that your numbers happen to support. That's a good point. That's right. Well, maybe, just, maybe analytics just sort of bounce around until they find the right sort of support or within organizations. Seriously. So there are two organizations that are talked about a lot right now because of their transformative use of analytics. Analytics. That's twice you've used transformative. I know. Uh, I know. That, that's a problem. One, one too many times. Um, okay, so what's the synonym <laughs> that I should use? Look up the thesaurus. Um, so it's the Astros and the Sixers. Both are almost legendary now for having used analytics to change the game dramatically. So the Sixers, they were talking about that they spent $3 million, I guess that's the, that's the report, on their analytics crew, and they essentially have... Taken apart every combination of players and against every other combination of players. So this is the thing that I'm, I'm very curious about. I'd like to get under the hood there and try to figure out what is the expenditure being used in in basketball. What is the analytics team? Well, they had a ten do? man staff to begin with, well, ten we, or eleven person. All right, so they person. have a lot of people. They're spending a lot of money, but yeah. what's what's it what's it used for? This is the this is a subject that I've danced around the edges a little bit. But how does a team actually use analytics to change the, the game? We need to send you to like an investigative report. I, I, like this is like sixty minutes or. Something. Something like that. I think this could be any <laughs> we, one we, of us. We need this to happen. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they're just going to open up and tell they're us. They're not going to. But, I mean, but it's going to require some tenacity need, to find out. We don't need the report. We need the documentary of Adi making the report. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly <laughs> what I would want. I'm gonna I want in the there. behind the scenes. I'm, I'm going to pretend to be Adi just pretending he's like legitimate press and then going in there. I don't care about the camera on the person he's talking to. I want the camera behind them on Adi talking to the person. I think that would be must see TV. It's we amazing can, how my my dead serious question has devolved. It's what's a, I think it's a fair question. We should get Ben Fogg to talk about that question. Ben was in the Sixers. He can't talk about prob. He doesn't want to talk about details of what they were doing, but he has firsthand knowledge. But we have other people we can talk to. We it's a great question. If you've got ten people staff, ten person yeah. staff yeah. or more in basketball. What are they actually doing? That's a great topic for a future. And actually, analytical question: How is, the, is that's a large staff relative to most basketball? It is. That is, and, a, that and, is and a it's large a complicated. Staff. So we, I know what happens in baseball. This is something that they're not. It's not that they're unsecretive about it. The individual teams aren't talking, but you know and you can see what is going on. I think it's a little bit more standardized in baseball yeah. now that like most teams have relatively similar, probably analytics yep. kind of grouping. Did y'all see this ridiculous story about Sigma Mydell? With the Astros, it's on the front page yes, of the yes. Times right now. He, he, he probably embedded himself in, in, in single A ball. Yeah, I guess it's a Just form to hit of fungo. embedding. It's in form, a form of Luno, the general manager there, sent Sig to the minors. Essentially, he was a coach. He was a development coach at their lowest level, their Corpus Christi team, and he spent the season last season, you know, with those guys, coaching first base, hitting fungos, shagging balls. Putting balls in the pitching machine, sitting on the bench—it's a phenomenal story. That's really this is the number yeah. one analyst in baseball. This was like the, one of the original guys. He has two World Series rings. He has a PhD in astrophysics or some crazy thing. He worked for NASA beforehand. Sig is a terrific guy. Yeah, he's, he's been one on of the, the smartest people in baseball I've ever met. B- but yet also one of the nicest people. Yeah, on this, yeah. This, on yeah so those two don't usually go together. But yeah. <laughs> <It turns out. laughs> but they had this idea that they need to the, the way to institutionalize what they're trying to do better. Is to is to put the guys actually in the field, put the guys with the teams, and it turns out they they report in the article anyway that these younger players are much more open to everything they're talking about. They're they're interested. They've been raised with these numbers. They and so it's it, they're kind of s- sowing seeds earlier in the players' development. Fascinating because one of the things that that the uh, Astros do is they provide an enormous amount of information to their players before the game starts, and generally the players ignore it. That's that's mm. the that's the report I have from both sides. The, the information is put together by the teams, by their analytic staff, and the players just and coaches but just one, don't that, yeah, watch. Yeah, with one, it. one could anticipate or foresee maybe a, 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 gener- a, new, generation a new generation of much might. more numerate players that like not only don't ignore the data, but maybe they actually seek it out. see and, and, and are actually drawn to an organization that they know is data savvy. Oh, interesting. Which would be kind so of, it'd be it's a, almost it'd be like advantage. the opposite of like, you know, historically well, probably, you know, they would they, go in free agency sign with the Astros because they're going to help you out because they've got better data. Yeah, like That's if you if you yourself think you've got, you know, sort of some talent that isn't re, you know, realized by the conventional stats, but you know that some analytic savvy organization is actually picking up on that, it's probably like a real positive sign to you that That's you neat. know. Right, right, right. So the the usage of of Stats, uh, analytics by by the the players is uh, I think embodied by Verlander. I, I watched Verlander. I didn't actually watch Verlander. I was in the car. I listened to Verlander pitch, and he was incredible. He had he pitched one of his best games in his entire career. Which are you talking about? Uh, last night, Verlander last night. The Astros fourteen versus strikeouts. The Yankees. Fourteen strikeouts in in seven or seven innings or, or oh eight innings, and it it was a masterpiece. Uh, it was, he left zero zero and lost the game, so it couldn't have been even better for me as a Yankee fan. Um, <laughs> but and Giles, who was a terrific closer, just kind of fell apart, huh. um, which 
which happens. But uh, the uh, the story about Verlander is that he came over from, I guess, the Tigers, yep. and and he just became a better pitcher, um, and much better. I mean, he was always a, a star. Let's not. Let's he not was having that. a great season for the Tigers but, before he came to but Houston. But he notched it up, and this year he's really? notched it up even further. Really? And uh, one of the things that the, he claims that he does is he sits there before the game going over all the detailed information that the analytics mm. staff puts together. No kidding. And so it's, it's information on how you pitch hitters. Adi, where did you learn this? We need to... We need to okay, so there are two thing. pieces of this that I know. Uh, one of them is that I, I know what the analytics staff do for teams, that I've been there and I've seen it, and they put together books, and I don't know how, how that changes across different teams, but I imagine at, the Astros are probably at the peak of this. And they have this. Uh, every batter has a has a spread tra- spray chart, if you will, or a chart on how they hit how they hit different pitches. Umpires they give them the exact information about the umpires, and it changes. I mean, so if you watch a game with say Angel <laughs> Hernandez, the guy's calling everything a strike. I mean, it's just everything, and this changes the entire. That was the game the day before. I see. And you just throw pitches just at, at odd corners, and you're getting strikes. And the, and it's and other other umpires are much more tight. So that you, there's a lot to learn and. And study, and apparently most pitchers just ignore it. Well, so I, I want to defend the players on this one because teams need to be thoughtful in the way they present this information, and yeah. they need to allow for different players wanting the information in different ways. So they've got to be flexible in how they give this to people to really make a difference. And I'm sure some of them are, but I'm sure some teams aren't doing that. And whenever we say they just ignore right. the information, my first reaction is I'm guessing they're not getting it in the yeah, way. Yeah, they're they probably. Need it. I mean, we've got a pretty low standard in terms of how numerous, like quantitative stuff, is presented us because we're trained yeah, in this. You'll read freaking anything. You'll read right, academic right. papers. Yeah, for- I mean, honestly, read, pick up a stats. <laughs> I mean, I don't how you'd be able to force like a non-statistician to read a stats paper, I don't know. How do you um, force a statistician to read a stats paper? Well, that, that's even a difficult <laughs> task. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think probably the, the art is in present, presenting the day, you know, the various, being able to boil down among the thousand things you could present to Justin Verlander about the upcoming right. game. Boiling it down to like the twenty he actually needs the most, I, I, and then communicating that in an effective way. I remember Sam Hinkie talking about how he conveys information within the organizations. Back when he was working for Daryl Morey at the Rockets, assistant GM at the Rockets, Sam would give information to his head coach in one way, to Daryl in a different way, right. to players in a third way altogether. And that's you're going to be dramatically more effective analyst if you can communicate in these different ways mm-hmm. that are tailored to the audience. Yeah. Well, this is stuff that I mean, I'm going to just be. Out, I, this is something I don't know how to do, but well. Because I think we, as Shane just mentioned earlier, I can I can digest the stats no matter how you give it, and just yeah. tell me the numbers and, and the graph. I'll just extract it. But it turns out you're not the target. Well, audience. I mean, the target I, audience. Right. right. I mean, I think you're selling yourself short. I think you spend a career uh, well, communicating well, yes. statistics to people in a very effective way. It's just it's a very hard endeavor to be honest. It's it's a, it's a difficult endeavor, and and I think probably people who are even less trained in the communication part of it than we are, you know, like like a random analyst right, right. at a baseball team. That's you know, they need guidance, basically, in that. This is Wharton Moneyball. Cade, Shane, and Adi this morning. You can join us, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six, Or add us. Matt, Matt's watching Twitter right now, at WMoneyBall, if you want to jump in here to the conversation. Open lines here in this first half hour. Did you pay any attention to the NFL draft? Yeah. What 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 jumped I did. out to you about that? I did. Audie's, we've got I him did. watching the draft as well. I didn't watch it. I did. I just did. Re- I read about it after okay. it happened. Okay. I mean, you know, of course, I'm going to take a patriot centric perspective, which everybody's, I'm sure, excited to hear about. But like, I was, I was a little disappointed that they didn't take a quarterback. Did you hear the rumors? <laughs> yeah, I did hear the Mayfield's rumors agent, that they were going to somehow get up to number two to Mayfield's take Mayfield. Agent reported that had he not been taken at number one, the Pats were going to try to. I don't trade know how up. the Pats could have. 
possibly well, gotten up to that number. What would they have used number. to trade? Yeah, well, other well, draft picks, I assume, slash their current players. I mean, I, they would have had to trade a lot to get up to number two. I, I, don't, I can't even imagine what they'd have to get up to So get can up I to ask my, my, uh, my colleagues who are more knowledgeable about the NFL and the NFL draft, why did Mayfield go number one? And why? Well, a year ago he was considered not even a top quarterback. Right. What, explain so, this to me. So the, it turns out the analytics like Mayfield. And that's a nice compliment to what people have always liked about Mayfield, which is his moxie, for lack of a better word. His leadership is intangible. Right, everyone, so the analytics everyone, loves moxie. No, no, no. That's okay. what I'm saying. All right. the, everyone has always loved him for his leadership, I see. His, his fight, his, all that, all those intangibles. He's, he's clearly the strongest of the four on that, at least as, but as well as we can measure. But he's also kind of subtly, analytically, a little bit more. Well, this is the thing we didn't know until yeah. people start running the numbers, and they, especially in, not only actually in comparison to Darnold and Rosen and Allen, but the, the analytics. I've seen a few analyses we can talk about in a sec, but also the analysts I've talked to in the league, they're all like, oh, yeah, we loved him. Numbers loved him yeah what what numbers are we talking about so what one nice analysis and this comes from um the a, a fella on twitter i'll give you his handle at frisco josh at frisco josh josh hermsmeyer he is running he runs these he, he does a lot of interesting things but he recently got his hands on some charting data so these are you, you can get you, you know much more detail what's happening on the field and the first thing he did he wanted to look at this stat that turns out to be one of the most diagnostic stats from college football quarterbacks about their NFL performance, and that is completion percentage when they have a clean pocket, which to me was counterintuitive. It's kind of like the uncontested shot in yeah, basketball. Yeah. Yeah. It's counterintuitive to me. I, 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 years ago when we like were doing this analysis. hitting. Yeah, it's like that. It's like I would have thought that maybe under duress maybe is the more, more doctor. But it turns out. And I've, I mean, and you I, can rationalize it as like, you know, if you can't hit an open receiver like, when you're not under contested, pressure, right, right. you're probably, you but know. But this is totally. in college, right? I, so this I can, is. I can, I, can, I, can, right, you can rationalize it. But this is one yeah. of those moments where I think it's, it's that. What's that, that, that Bill James comment about numbers should, good analytics should, Confirm, confirm your, what you already already know about three quarters of the time and surprise you about a quarter yeah. whatever that ratio yeah. is this is like that I, li- I like it because for me it's a little surprising and then you can find a story for it but i've seen it now i've, I've just i've run it across it myself and now i've seen it from a, two different analysts who say one of the best numbers you can get for predicting a college quarterback's performance in the nfl is his college completion percentage from a clean pocket so you run that and the Hermsmeyer run the ran these curves where it's not only he ran that but he, he he ran it as a function of how deep the target was this is something else you get in charting data was he trying to go was he just throwing a little pass to the flat or five or ten yards 30 yards and so you can imagine it declines but you're drawing this curve and then you're asking how do these college quarterbacks compare to how NFL quarterbacks do by the same by the same metric and one of the things that people have been talking about lately, especially this year, is that a, a, a college quarterback's numbers in college is kind of a ceiling for how he's going to do in the NFL. Don't expect a guy to do Of course do not, because one of the things that, that my little knowledge knows is that the receivers in college are way more open than they are. Exactly. In, exactly. Not bad, huh? That is pretty bad. <laughs> so, so this is, but this is what, Adi, this is the reason it matters is that people see things, players like Josh Allen who's got a very middling completion percentage despite playing in a group of five team in Wyoming. And they expect him to do better because he's got all these tools. And the, and the analysts these days are saying, and these days is relatively recent, are saying, that's ah, kind of a ceiling. The guy, don't, you don't typically see higher completion percentages. Right. Okay, so so this, is, this makes this comparison relevant. They're going to compare completion percentage from clean pockets, these four big quarterbacks, to the NFL average. And what you see is, 
Darnold and Rosen and even Allen are pretty much on that curve. They're right around the NFL average for their completion percentage. So on the x-axis is distance of target and y-axis is completion percentage. Yeah. And conditioned, from, on, from, conditioned on having a clean pass. Yes, yes so, right. Yeah. And then, okay. And, and Mayfield's above at, at every distance and not by a little bit. And yeah. so he's dramatically, I, w- I think dramatic is fair to say, dramatically better than the other candidates, other prospects, and dramatically above the NFL curve, which is a good thing to see because he's probably going to come down, and at all distances. And, and we know that this is, probably the, this is probably the most diagnostic stat you can come up with. And so this is not the only thing people are basing it on, but this is one that really jumps out. Now, is there historical data on this thing, or is this charting data not that easy to get and you can't go back far, that far with it in college? Well, of course it's based on historical because I'm telling you that it's the most predictive. But how far how, – and I've, yeah. the, the stuff you can buy yeah. is only a few years old. And so that's not very deep. It's exactly right. But some other teams have had it for some time, and so I, I'm telling you that it holds from, a, from, a further, from further back as well. It's interesting. It's a fascinating story. I I feel like I learned a lot with this conversation. Well, it's, I mean, the thing is, there's irreducible uncertainty with these quarterbacks. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with them? And they're, you know, they're. I mean, he's going to be coached by what's his name? Uh, Hugh Jackson. So that's not going to help. Okay. I think this is an important, this is a really important. Explain this to me. Well, who is Hugh Jackson other than the the singer (laughs) and the the guy on, on TV? Hugh Jackson's the head coach of the Cincinnati. Used to be, now he's with the Cleveland Browns. So oh, okay. And he's not. That, that's the team that I know lots about. The Cleveland Browns because they're always challenging for for lead. Yeah, right. So <laughs> they, they do actually get attention because of he's won so one bad. game in they, two they years. Number one and number four are pick, right? But Shane brings up this great point that it's mm-hmm. not just who the guy is when he comes out of college. It, it depends on where he lands. Yeah. And we tend to over emphasize. In fact, we mostly exclusively emphasize the quality of the guy and not not, the, enough. not how much, where he lands. Right. Bill, Bill Conley did a nice piece, a great piece on SB Nation in the last week or two on exactly this issue, that getting a guy into a good organization with a coach who, whose style he fits and he, who has a little time so he doesn't have to play from day one can make a big difference. I, Bill's he was mostly arguing it from theory and anecdote. Yeah. It's hard to get the data. And on I mean, that, he's got the fact that he, is he and and you know uh, May, Mayfield's got the advantage that he certainly does not have to play from day one. That is something. I mean, they don't yeah, necessarily a, have right. to play him at all this season, frankly. Right. Um, but I, again, I mean, we've 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 sort of looked at you know Hugh Jackson's stylings with quarterbacks over the last like couple of years, and it's, yeah. there's not much reason for optimism there, right? So you can you can kind of compare the quarterback situations not just by your your estimate of how good they are now but by where they landed. So you know Josh Allen, this guy that people are so skeptical about, goes into a situation that's probably not ideal because he's going to be expected to start probably for the Bills he's, early in yeah. his in his time there. Yeah. And okay. it's a middling organization. Well, I don't know about the organization, middling team. Yeah, and he's going to be starting, and he's already got some chips stacked against him. All right, so so the Jets, turning to to my actual mm-hmm. favorite uh, football team, they passed on Rosen, which I thought was a, an odd move because Joe, uh, Rosen is a Jewish quarterback yeah, in a very Jewish. I, you, Jewish really, you really, you really, you really worked yourself up about I, this I particular story, and, and they they passed on him for for Darnold. So tell me what was the thinking behind that? So I think they was. Go ahead, Jay. I think they were probably surprised Darnold fell to him. I think they, they, you yeah. know, I think they were probably expecting the Browns to take Darnold. Yeah, most people had Darnold as the number uh-huh. one quarterback in the draft. The, mm-hmm. high, the certainly the highest floor, and some people thought the highest highest ceiling as well. Um, R- Rosen, the, the the everyone considers him kind of the purest passer, but there's some concern about his 
his motivation and competitiveness and leadership, all those kind of soft, intangible things, you know, those are hard to assess. Who, who really knows? But Darnold, I would say the consensus ranking would have had Darnold above Rosen. So they just he, – he fell to them and they just took him. Yeah. yeah well, okay. I, don't, I don't think it was a hard thing. Yeah. I, th- uh, I think it's a little bit – I was a little surprised to see um, – or I guess a little disappointed to see that Lamar Jackson was not drafted higher. I mean, he was drafted in the first round, which was great, but just barely. Barely at the last minute. Yeah. Um, well, so, and Lamar Jackson's an example of a guy who lands at a team where – Oh, he's walking into a great situation. He's a great situation. He's not going yeah. to have to play this year. Joe Flacco is going to presumably still be the starter yep. for at least another year. He's got – they've already been thinking about how to work in a more mobile quarterback because of RG3 they signed in the offseason to be a backup quarterback. They've got a staff there who worked with Michael Vick back in the day. And so he seems to have landed, even though it took 32 picks to get there, yeah. he seems to have landed in a situation that's kind of ideal for him. He's the one that I wish the Patriots would have potentially picked up. Well, but, but, I mean, you know, I, I think they, they could have. Just, they passed on him one pick they before. Pa- they, felt they passed like, on him twice. They passed on him twice. Yeah. So, and that was an organization people thought might take him. Mm-hmm. And Jacksonville, mm-hmm. there late in the first round, people thought might get him as well. Yeah. So, so no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit disappointing. But I guess <clears throat> they're putting all their eggs into the Brady basket for the foreseeable for the, future. Well, Brady certainly puts all the eggs in Brady basket. What do you say? He said he's going to play until he's 45. Or yeah. Now Roethlisberger is saying the same thing. Did you <laughs> hear that? Roethlisberger <laughs> says he's going to play four or five more, three or four, four or five more years. One of the things that jumps to me, jumps out to me after watching this this year's draft is how much luck there is, not in whether or not your pick works out, but whether or not you get to pick the person you wanted to pick. I mean, yeah. these guys, they have their boards, and they're just watching as other teams go before them on whether their guy is going to fall to them. And they've always got a ranking of the remaining players, but it's very – very non-continuous you know they'll have one guy or two guys way above everyone else and they're just hoping as they're watching other teams pick that they fall to them and sometimes they get right you know the pick before and they get then they go and flip it around sometimes guys fall to them that they never would have expected to so who they end up with it's not just a matter of their evaluations it's what happens before them 31 teams they have no control over whatsoever there's an enormous amount of chance involved here yeah so and there are big consequences. Yeah, and I mean, I'm I'm, I'm kind of excited to talk to. We should talk to Demita. Demita's done a you know a lot of work on uh, hockey drafts, uh, studying the hockey draft exactly from this perspective that you can't analyze a draft and prospectively you know predict a draft without taking into account what the other teams are going to do, mm-hmm. which is which makes it a very difficult you know situation. But you know these days where you can kind of simulate and stuff like I mean like historically it must have been almost impossible to do that type of thing. Now you can. Well, here's a good question, Shane. Who, yeah. who do you think any team is running like a real time simulation on draft order as a function of remaining players and perceived team interest? I mean, I think it's a wonderful idea. That well, how would you use this? I think we're I think we're probably one or two years the, away from that. The, but the, the, it being something conventional, or, or it being something that like teams are actually trying out, like actually in the draft room in their ten minutes. I, you know, does yeah. some NFL team have this? Maybe, yeah. Um, conventional, I would hold off. I'm gonna yeah, guess that's a probably long time. five or ten years. But one way to use it, Audi, is when you're deciding whether to trade back. Someone calls you and I says, "Hey, that. we'll mm-hmm. trade back," and you know you're dying to get this particular defensive back, or you think he's a, a real a head and shoulders above other people. What are the chances he's still going to be there if you take this trade and you're going to pick seven picks later? 
and you're going to get something valuable for the you're going to get something. Yeah. So you, but that's but you still are hoping that you get this guy. And so this is exactly the calculus these guys go through, and they have less sophisticated means of doing that than a simulation. But mm-hmm. I'm sure this sophistication varies dramatically across the league. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner. Eric Bradlow is out doing Eric Bradlow things. He will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday, 8 to 10. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton that's one 942 7866 You can also email us, Matt Dat standing by for your email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also tweet at us. Our Twitter handle, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests and tweet throughout the week about sports analytics. Just out of an open lines half hour, rolling into our first guest segment, first of two, as usual, bottom of the first hour, top of the next hour, in this half hour, Jeff Cedar. Jeff is the founder, owner, and president of EQB Inc. He's a longtime friend of the show. He's been in the world of horses for over 40 years. He's a leading talent scout buyer for young, unraced, thoroughbred racehorses. Delighted, always delighted to have Jeff on the show. Welcome back, Jeff. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Jeff, we're delighted to have you. I look forward to this show all year round, man. Seriously. How, how are you doing right now? Where are you calling from? I'm calling from my farm in uh, near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I was just nice horse farm, rolling horse farm, beautiful weather. Well, finally, I Jeff, finally, I drove yeah, in from time <laughs> the Derby. Well, we need to get you either to the studio or us to your farm. This is my goal for 2019: is that we do this collectively somewhere. I drove from Harrisburg last night through you know near Lancaster, and it is pretty country out there. I don't think it'd take too much to. We may come knock on your door sometime, Jeff. Is that going to be okay with you? Great place to be a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Derby is this Saturday, so that's a big deal in spring. As as you know, that the the significance of the Derby is it was always a uh, uh, like the best of the new crop. I mean, it's three year olds. Horses aren't uh, uh, mature; they're not fully grown until they're five. So these are really teenagers, and it was meant to be originally the debutante party, the coming out of the best of the new crop. Oh, really? Now, if they win, they're worth so much money, they're often retired very so shortly thereafter. They're worth so much money because as a as in breeding? As a stud, yeah. As a stud, so they retire them. So, Jeff, yeah. I have a question. When you say that this is the coming out party, so the horses are supposed to be three years old. I noticed that in some of the information that we got from you about the horses, one of the columns is the month born. Now, can you tell us about why that's relevant and how does age figure in? Well, if you in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, the uh, I forget the name of it, about ten thousand hours or something, the Outliers. Uh, he he, uh, he pointed out in the National Hockey League that all these great players were all born in like January and February because then they, the leagues are all by age, and so then they're the older than the other kids, and they get the best coaches and the best to do the best early, and they go in the best leagues. So there's a huge skew towards horse towards hockey players born early in the year well in horse racing every horse's birthday is officially january 1st so you're a two-year-old or you're a three-year-old when it turns january 1st but they're born anywhere from january through june and since they're only three years old and they aren't a mature till they're five you're talking about adolescence 
So a horse that was born in January is now almost 40 months old, and a horse that was born, say, in May or June is 35 or 36 months old. So they aren't even three years old if they're born in June. So this that can be as much as a 10% difference. So that's like in an adolescent, a 16-year-old, 10% would be 1.6 or or almost two years is the equivalent here. So you got like 14-year-olds versus 16-year-olds. It's a big deal. On the other hand, this year you have five or six who were born in May, and a couple of them are favorites. Wow. So, so those those are, figure. are, are are figuratively the children of the of the uh, the crew this year. Yeah, being born the, in May. They're the uh, Nadia Comaneches. Not so. So, what is the <laughs> is is there an age curve for horses? I mean, so by the time they're five, are they running much faster? They are definitely running faster at four and five. Some of the ch- world champions that we bought for clients and developed uh, ran their best races at four and became world champions at five. Yes. So, Jeff, before we go too far, can can you remind our listeners about your background? Because though you've been in horses for decades now, it's it wasn't you kind of took a, a, a sidestep into some places we don't usually see horse people. So you're at Harvard in pre-med finance. You're a member of the Pennsylvania Bar. Can you give us a little bit of that story? Yeah, well, I took a ride one day in May at a rental stable, and instead of falling in love with a girl who was my date, I fell in love with the horses. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, since then, it's been an obsession. I did, you know, I took riding lessons and I bought a horse. And then I wanted to do a, uh, uh, I did my thesis at Harvard in business and law on, uh, on uh, thoroughbred racing in Massachusetts. My uh, advisor was uh, Archibald Cox. And now that that's kind of stuff is in the news. Maybe we'll get Mueller fired. Archibald, remember the, the Saturday Night Massacre from right. Nixon? right. Anyway, I told him what I wanted to do for my thesis. He said, what are you interested in he said, for your thesis? And I said, horses. And he steered me towards the, uh, I thought he was going to throw me out of his office. Right. But he took a great big book and threw it on the desk and dusk rose up. He was in the stacks for his office. And he said, this is a statute on horse racing in Massachusetts. No one at Harvard has ever looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that went well. Anyway, I, I ended up, I worked, I, I was a young lawyer and I, the East Germans were bursting on the scene, winning all these medals and scaring the hell out of Russia mm. and the U.S., who had always dominated the Olympics. So I, uh, uh, the United States, oh, East Germany was doing, and, and they were rumored to be using mad scientists pulling kids out of kindergarten and doing all kinds of sports medicine. So there was an effort started in the United States that eventually became United States Olympic Sports Medicine Committee for research and for training centers for our athletes. And I was a part of the beginning of that. And then for a few years, I worked closely in biomechanics and uh, exercise physiology with people on that committee. And eventually I split off to do it commercially for racehorses. Mm-hmm. So I've worked with some of the best people in the fields of uh, animal locomotion and biomechanics, exercise physiology, statisticians, engineers, veterinarians for a long time. We've published, we're the published experts on a lot of this stuff in the refereed major veterinary journals. Okay. Uh, on a lot of the techniques that we use, the analytics. For so example, Jeff- we... My, my memory is that one of the things you do is you, you sit at the track and you record the horses as they go by and then analyze their gait, for lack yes, of a better term. Yes, that's one of the techniques is, is locomotion, quadruped locomotion stuff with super high-definition, super slow motion. We've been doing that a long time. We have huge databases, and uh, we look at the energetics of it, how much energy they have to expend, uh, how tired they get, and all kinds of things about the way they move that are only apparent in slow motion. There's a there's a primer on this on our website, EQB, 
EQB.com for equine biometrics. EQB.com, you can see a little video of it that shows. I mean, you look at some of the way these sources run in slow motion, and, you know, some of the things they do are awful. It's obvious they're going to get hurt. They're not going to stay in training. So wow. we do that, and we have Jeff, how important enormous is the, databases, and we work for some of the top stables in the country. How important thousands is, of horses a year. How important is the the analytics and the camera part of that because you you just know that for generations people for centuries probably people have sat in the stands and watched horses run and just kind of with their eyes and their expertise and their experience done that kind of evaluation or at least they believed they were able to do that they kind of evaluation what i see i they buy horses every sale every year two million dollars four hundred thousand dollars that i know will not stand training i know if they saw what i was looking at if they would do that technique, they would not buy that horse. So what, what and, particular... And I published the statistics on it in referees' journals. It's a tight relationship. These horses earn less, and they la- don't last very long. They do these things that you cannot see with a vacant eye. My <laughs> partner has been in racehorses for 40 years. She's one of the best eyes in the business, recognized as it. She was a jockey and a leading trainer, and this and that. She can't see it. Yeah, right. Jeff, do you think, here's a, you know, we just came through the NFL draft. And one of the things they do in prep for the draft is they bring everyone in Indianapolis and put them through all kinds of paces, including famously a 40-yard dash. What are the chances that someone could put a camera on these guys running 40-yard dashes, break it down in kind of the same way you've broken it down, and eventually have a similar analysis on NFL athletes? Absolutely. It's already done in the Olympics for swimmers, for example, and rowers. The young ones, you take a repetitive motion like that uh, and – you do that, and then you can look at the, the muscle. If you take a muscle, say, uh, uh, in a laboratory uh, out of a frog in an uh, experiment, which I didn't do because I'm an animal nut, but, uh, <laughs> and you give it a little shock every second, and you can watch how, how much it, it contracts. Right. And, and it does eventually tires and goes less and less and less until it doesn't move. That fatigue covers, uh, follows a logarithmic function. So you can... You can predict in the first several several uh, twitches when it's going to fail and okay. how, what the curve will look like. Mm-hmm. They developed that for young swimmers going 25 yards to see who could go 100 yards later. Mm-hmm. In life. They've done it. It already exists as a technology in the Olympic sports medicine movement. I don't know why the NFL wouldn't use it. So they, are you imagining that, so if I'm hearing you correctly, they'll take an 8-year-old and see how fast they swim 25 yards and then project how they're going to do in 100 yards in a couple years, or is that... If you have the data, absolutely, and it's fairly accurate. Ah, this explains why I never panned out as a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a great in, lead into the uh, Kentucky Derby because that's kind of the main sort of like you know kind of uniqueness of that particular race. Is it, it, the, it, length? it, it, it the length of it? Yes, none of those horses have gone a mile and a quarter before. Not a single one, and that extra eighth mile is a huge, big deal. And none of them have ever carried that weight before. They've never carried 126 pounds. And the old handicappers say a pound is a length at a mile. Wait. So that's that's a big deal. So why, wow. why not? Wow. How come they don't carry? What are they? What have they carried in their earlier races? One eighteen, one twenty three max. So you're so just to, to be clear, the jockeys weigh a certain amount, and then they get topped up to a certain to a number. And so you have a yeah, light they jockey and then up to a number. They must do it. And they weigh them before and after. That's okay. when they win the race. Mm-hmm. They kept it. Grab their tack and walk to the scales. By the way, what do those what do those weights look like? How what do they what do they put on the horse? Lead, <laughs> lead bars. <laughs> so they've got they've got they fit, they fit into a little pouch that's in the saddle. Got it. The the, the uh, uh-huh. saddle towel. Uh, you know, we also developed a technique to look at their hearts, the size and shape of their left ventricle, and the thickness of their walls. And we we 
did it on 12,000 horses over 10 years and everything they ever did. And it turns out that the, that's how part of how we bred and, and kept American Pharaoh, the Triple Crown winner, as part of our program. Uh, you know, he had an enormous heart. The, the really good racehorses, their hearts are 50% bigger and stronger than the average racehorse. We developed the equipment. We developed the technique. We published it. We use it. So, so there's two analytics. Jeff, it's the amazing. The quarter thing, there's the, a big one for right now, and I sent you that. These horses haven't run that far. So we can take their best performance and extrapolate it using the logarithmic velocity fatigue curves and see what their time theoretically would be for a mile and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not perfect because you have to have different racetracks you've run on in different conditions, and there's the traffic during the race and this and that and the other, but it's pretty damn good. And you're getting and big I, spreads. In your forecast, you, you, you have a 10-second spread between what you show to be, what you expect to be the slowest horse and the fastest horse. That's, that's quite a bit of variance. So you, you've got some confidence in this number. Well, we've been doing it for years, and it's a great way to – to bet on the derby. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so, uh, these, these horses, if they don't win, they're usually up front, and there's always long shots in there. So I'm looking at your chart, and you have the. There's only one horse I think that's that you're predicted to go under two minutes. Yeah, and, and I don't think he's going to do it because he's wildly inconsistent, but he's capable of it. So free so drop, Billy. The, who is that? Who yeah. it is? So, so basically, what you're saying, he's very has the potential to be very fast, but he's just just doesn't have their his act together. He's also one of the Last young horses. Of races now. He's been going the wrong direction, and maybe he's lame, or maybe he doesn't care. I don't know. Okay. His trainer, Gail Romans, is the same way. He's a sporadic genius. When he's when he's right, he's phenomenal, and when he's not, he's hard. We're talking to Jeff so, Cedar. Jeff's a longtime horse scout trainer. He's been in the horse business for 40 years after beginning at places like Harvard and pre-med. We have him, on the guest, we have him as a guest on the show every year about this time to walk us through the Derby. Who else jumps out to you when you look at this Kentucky Derby field this year? Well, two of the horses we actually, one we bought for clients, the other we tried to buy very hard, and there it was near the top of our list. These are his yearlings at auctions, and the, and the, the veterinarian failed it. We hired our own vet, spent a lot of money to convince the guy that it was nothing. It was good enough. Better a diamond with a flaw than a pebble without. Mm-hmm. But uh, they wouldn't buy it. So that's Magnum Moon. What was the and, flaw? He supposedly had chips in his front ankles, which could have been removed, but I, we don't think he did. We, just, we think that was a X-ray artifact. But anyway, it was Magnum Moon. The one we did buy was Solomini, who has seconditis. He always seems to get in trouble when in traffic. <laughs> he's got, if you look, he's, I mean, he's got a 202 extrapolation. He's right near the top of the thing there. He's always near the top, but somehow he finds a way he gets bumped. His last race, the Arkansas Derby, he, he, he hung back off of not a very fast pace, which is a big mistake. And then when he needed to make a move on the outside, coming up the outside, his, his jockey angled him into traffic on the inside. Was, you know, I, I don't know, but he's always got an excuse. So, he's, so Jeff, tell us r- real quickly sign. about that. How, how much of the variance do you think is explained by jockey performance? I, you know, I feel the jockeys can screw it up, but they can't make it good. And uh, That's an unfortunate they, business to be in. Yeah, well, it's like a goalie. They have, you know, it's they're very important. They can kill the race. Wow. Uh, they can't make it. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't mm-hmm. make it. They what? get you in trouble at the wrong time. They don't sense the thing. They hang like they hang way back off a, a, a slow pace and have twenty legs to make up at the end, or they go so fast early the horse is exhausted and can't finish the race, or they get in traffic when they need to make a move, or some horses I know from my analysis. Locomotion. Some horses have great, long, sweeping, wonderful strides, 
And the only way they can use them is if the guy heads to the outside and lets right. him run up the, the stretch. Right. And if you take a horse like that and put him on the rail or put him in traffic, he can't use it. Right. So do the jockeys know this? I mean, they, they must know no, their host. No, nobody knows it. I, I, nobody listens. You know, the, the technology <laughs> is verboten. It's something like it's, it's like they think it's, you know, like it's it's. Uh, classless or something. I don't know. Jeff, I, it's, a, don't know. it's amazing to me that that's the case because you're not, you're not you don't just have the data. You're publishing the data in peer-reviewed well, articles available. That, there's 23 or 24,000 horses born a year registered. They can only be in the Derby once when they're three years old. 20 can qualify. That's that's seven one-hundredths of one percent. The last several years, we've been second three times. We've won it once. We've had as many as four horses in the gate that we bought as yearlings. 2009, 2010, 2011, 2014, 2015, and this year it's two. So I say, my dad used to say, five flukes are a trend. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I haven't done the numbers yet, but I can imagine if there's 2,400 horses born a year and only 20 make the 24,000 bought a year only 20 make the derby and every year you're having two or three you're not buying 500 horses how many are you buying i'm how many are you buying maybe 10 15 so your denominator is 10 or 15 and you're putting not only that but we're buying them at or below the auction averages which is okay so it's essentially what you're saying is nobody's ever listening to you check that out so we we Jeff, you, we've 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 come, we we've been listening to you for a couple of years, so we're with you on that altogether. The question is, why? I mean, we we bemoan the aversion to stats in NFL, in the NHL, and the culture that is that kind of works against it. There, why is what's going on in horse racing? Why, with as much money as at stake here, are they so averse to this edge? Here's an edge. Here's an edge. I don't know. They say wealthy, successful businessmen leave their brains at the door at the racetrack. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I know one of the reasons why I, I work for some of the leading stables in the world, but one of the reasons I don't work for more of them is because nobody else trusts me now because they figure I'll give the best horse to my huge clients. Mm. So it doesn't get, so and that's the case, so then I'm not getting my, I'm not a mass market. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, I can't be, I have to be a boutique. I can't give everybody the best horse, right? right? Anyway, let me just tell you some of the ones that are long odds. Please. That, uh, that I think really have a shot if they run their best race. Uh, well, the favorites are things like Audible and Malibu Moon. I mean, Justify uh, is, is isn't Justify the the favorite? Yeah, Justify is another one. Uh, Vino Rosso has a real chance. A lot of people think that uh, I don't. I won't go into all the problems, but Vino Rosso's one at high odds. Uh, let's see who else. Solomini has a shot if he stops with a second itis. Bazo <laughs> at fifty to one. Never sold a public auction. If he runs to his best race with Wayne Lucas, a Hall of Famer, Wayne Lucas is kind of these days like Dale Romans. When he, you know, he's, when he shows up, man, he does well. Free drop Billy is so inconsistent. <laughs> Thirty-three to one has a shot. We like we like uh, volatility. We'll take some volatility. Hofberg, if he runs to his top, can, will be mm-hmm. up in the front somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Combatant, who's forty to one, has the and uh, instilled regard. There, they're all fifty to one. Stowed regard, fifty to one. Hofberg, sixteen to one. Free drop, Billy, thirty-three to one. Bravazo, mm-hmm. uh, fifty to one. Solomini, twenty-two to one. Entice, twenty-five to one. These are all horses that are, I think, are going to could easily be up front. And Vino Rosso at sixteen to one. Mm-hmm. 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 And so, why do I come to a different conclusion than the, the, the professional handicappers? The reason is because they all look at the speed in the past. And these, this is a uh, you know an eighth of a mile further, 
And uh, so they're all looking at what happened, and I'm looking at what could happen. And and probably they're kind of, at least implicitly, kind of doing a linear extrapolation, right? They're just saying, well, this horse has got this particular pace, and he just does it again over the next eighth of a mile. Whereas you've got this kind of more logarithmic decay on the pace that, that is a little bit more predictive of their actual performance. It's a lot more predictive as far as they stretch out. Now, that, that on the other hand, there's a lot more going on. I mean, like I say, there's the attitude of the horse and the trainer and the jockey. Right. And what about and the size of the field? You got like 20, rain. 20 horses. 20 horses. I mean, that just must ratchet up the randomness, right? Compared to a six-horse field. Or... Some horses get out there and they get a wall of mud in their face and they say, phooey. <laughs> there's temperament of horses. Can't... Jeff, there's I... no, uh, no free agents. You said that do it. they're expecting Somebody rain. Them. What is what would rain do to the race and your analysis? It'll it'll toss it all. It'll toss it. <laughs> oh, no. Will it make it more of an equalizer? I mean, will it turn the long shots into a better bet? Yes, depending on which long shot. Then, when if it rains, you got to look for horses with uh, mud or slop form. You gotta look for horses with mud or slop form, do, 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 and it makes a huge difference. Some horses will not run in off really awful. And in the Derby, of all places, in the Derby, if you're in traffic, you know, with 15 horses throwing mud in your face, it's bad. <laughs> all right, so I think that suggests betting longer, longer odds. But J- Jeff, one last question before we let you go: talk about natural ability versus development. We were just talking about it in the draft, and we're really out of time. We need to come back to this topic, but we think of horses as like fixed ability, or does the trainer make that much difference? There's some horses are developing. They're only teenagers. Some of them are going to peak two years from now. Yes, you have to look at what's the pattern. Are they getting better or not? Mm-hmm. Because some of them are just going to keep getting better, and some of them are going to plateau early. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, it's very important. A trainer plays a big role in it, but uh, injuries play a big role, minor injuries, right. all kinds of things. Right, right. Well, listen, Jeff, we could talk to you all morning on this stuff. We really appreciate your taking time out of your work to come on the show and visit with us. Well, I'm very happy to do it. I hope I didn't talk too fast. I was trying to cover a lot of ground. Well, we appreciate it, and we wish you the best with how the Derby goes and with your work going forward. Thank you. Maybe you can use some of those long shots in your exotic bet. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Cedar, founder, goes. owner, and president of EQB, longtime friend of the show. Been in horses for over 40 years, always giving us the scoop on the Derby here on Derby Week. We're at the halfway point. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey this morning with my collaborator, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. You can join the conversation. Give us a shout, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also reach us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. Give us a question. Give us an observation. Give us an over-under. We'll do over-under at the end of the show if you want to use. We, we do use them sometimes from you guys, so feel free to jump in. Just off the phone with Jeff Cedar, our regular guest, Derby Week. Love talking to Jeff Cedar. Always want to talk to Jeff Cedar. He can get a little worked up, which is 
We can, delightful. Yeah, we can give him another spot during the year. We, can, we should do another spot. Do we do the second second half hour with Jeff somewhere down the road? A recap of the end, end of no, the I'm, Triple I'm Crown not season. Opposed. I'm not opposed. In the next half hour, delighted to welcome into the studio even Namita Nandakumar. Namita is a graduating senior from here at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School. The Wharton School? The Wharton School, no less. And interesting to us for so many reasons. Shane's been talking about her for a long time as this great student he has. And she, I think she began her work mostly on the hockey world, but she's going, she's been working in the NFL. And she's, she's one of these people who has a job that other students are jealous of. She's going to go to work full time for the Philadelphia Eagles, the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles, sometime this summer after she gets a little time off, I hope. Namita, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're delighted to have you, and, and especially it's always fun to have this, the guest in, in studio. And congrats on wrapping up what has been a four-year journey here. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel like this is the culmination of that, That's being right. on this That's radio right. show. It is, it is the height. <laughs> it's, all, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> well, we should do that. The price of the best stat student each year gets well, half an hour on our show. Namita has some impressive credentials. She was the, the president of the Stat Society, right. undergraduate Stat Society. We can't. Forget that. No, that's good. That's great. <laughs> I'm not sure which is more impressive, that or the job with the Eagles. That's a, it's it's a, a toss-up. Toss it know. is absolutely a toss-up. So uh, we're, we want to hear more about the Eagles. I understand you're not going to be able to say much about it. But let, tell us first about how you got going in this world of sports analytics and, and, and why hockey was your starting place. Sure. So, I mean, it's actually funny because uh, I think people sort of knew me as this hockey person. But when I started out, I was – deciding on a topic for basically a research project. Um, and there was no like specific reason or, or really compelling reason that it had to be hockey. Uh, but I am absolutely obsessed with the draft. Um, and I think the drafts that you can sort of say the most interesting strategic things about happen to be the NHL draft and the NFL draft, just because the length, seven rounds, very conducive to finding sort of value late. Um, but it's not to the extent of like baseball where it's like, a billion rounds and like we've all probably it's been 40. drafted <laughs> we've all probably been drafted by an mlb team right. so like, unbeknownst to us right? yeah um so i it was it was in between those and and i kind of had an idea for a project while i was watching the nhl draft which is actually not a thing that i usually did but for some reason i had it on like a couple of years ago um and then i was like all right i'm gonna do this what was the idea so uh, Boston, the Bruins had the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th picks um, in the 2015 draft. And they had made a series of selections that were sort of widely panned, even though one of them, Jake DeBrusque, is like playing very well right now. Um, but people were saying, like, oh, they should have gone with the guys that like everyone had as like who should go at those picks. So guys like Matty Barzell and like even Travis Konechny, who's a, a flyer right now. And I was kind of thinking, it was like, okay, so, but what if these guys turn out to be like diamonds in the rough, like undiscovered gems? Does that make what the Bruins did really compelling and, and great? And then one thing struck me, which was that I think the, the last pick, the 15th overall, was used on a guy, Zach Senishin, who was widely thought to go in like the second round. Um, or maybe even the third, and also that the Bruins had had an early second in that year. And I was like, isn't that the decision then? Even if you think that he is going to be the best player um, that you've ever seen 
if you can get him with that early second, why wouldn't you? So wait, so don't don't yeah. reach. Why don't why, why jump early for yeah. a guy? Basically, it, all about projecting whether or not a player will fall to whatever your next pick is, as right. opposed to picking him right now. Yes. Right. So there's, there's a huge dynamic in drafts, and something people talk about a lot. I've, I've always I feel like analysts are, are it's, it's easy to criticize that from the sidelines because it's a real risk for an organization mm-hmm. who might think highly of a player to to. To, to, to basically take the chance that no one else is going to think as highly of them. Yeah, um, it's definitely, I, I think, a, a risky kind of position to take. And actually, um, you know, it, it's like my sort of foundational work that I'm like trying to build a lot of stuff off of. Um, and I, I was kind of thinking, I was like, all right, like this sounds really cool. Um, and there are ways that you can try to project like who's going to be available when. Uh, but will I ever get hired by a team if what I'm proposing is so like inherently risky and, mm-hmm. and so like possibly you could mm-hmm. lose your job for mm-hmm. it type mm-hmm. of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, that <laughs> worked out. <laughs> well, wait, wait until they start using it and then, yeah. then you're at real risk. The, one of the challenges with that particular issue is that. You, you you only get feedback in one direction essentially. Yeah. That and it's it's a real problem with learning. It's teams kind of don't learn their way out of this problem because mm-hmm. what they know is if they if they wait and they're wrong, then someone they lose the player. They 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 learn the fact that they're wrong. They never learn the fact that they're right. Why not? I mean, if they if it's a risky maneuver, you'd think that learning it correctly would be something that they would observe. Yeah, there's. I've completely lost my thread here. I'm going to come back. But, to But I mean, there there is an issue with like if you take a guy, you're you're not sure, you know, how much longer he would have been available, right? So you do yeah. lose that information. Mm-hmm. It's censored in that way. Yeah. But you're but you're proposing essentially to not jump on a player because you expect them to be around still when you have the next chance. Yeah. And that sounds a little bit has a little risky component to it and a risky forecast are the ones that are that, that produce information right yeah. so that's and they should produce some information I mean I think I, I think kind of part of the really interesting part about this this work is it just introduced a different dimension to yeah. to your an extra dimension to your analysis I mean you know, if you didn't sort of take this into account, you could literally just go into the NFL draft with a ranked list of your player. The player you you've got right. all the players ranked according to how much you want them, and you just you know when go your slot comes up, you're like you you cross, you cross off names. And when your slot comes up, um, you you just take. Well, the this best is player. exactly the criticism the Browns got for right. taking their cornerback when everyone thought Chubb was the better player. If yeah. they really wanted the cornerback, fine, but you could trade back a few spots. Pick That's up right. something extra and still get your guy. Yeah, so I mean, right. by taking into account the preferences of other potential preferences of other teams, though that's sure. not an easy modeling exercise. No, you, just so you much uncertainty. Ju- that yeah. is uncertainty because yeah. you don't know. Right. And the, the so, people, for example, people were saying, you know, they criticized the Browns again for taking Mayfield number one because everyone thought Darna was number one, and now these you know leaks are coming out. We don't know whether they're true or not. That other teams were actually interested in Mayfield, and so they may have been too sure. They could take him with their fourth pick. Turns out he might not have been available with their fourth pick. So, Namita, um, one of the things that make the NFL draft so interesting is that there is this horse trading that happens so vigorously throughout the draft. And in baseball, it doesn't happen at all. I think that's the rules. You can't you can't do this. Um, how about hockey? Does hockey have all this sort of? Can you, in other words, if you know that the player that you want isn't going to, no one else really wants, and will be around, can you can you exchange that for value in trades? Is that? That's possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think definitely not to the extent that you see it in the NFL. Um, I, it's so funny to look at like who's owned a pick in the NFL, and it's like six teams 
previous to who actually gets to use it. Um, but but there is there is that element in the NHL um, to a lesser extent, um, which is why I think <clears throat> these sorts of like pick value charts are so in vogue. <clears throat> and one of the interesting things is, ooh, excuse me. The, 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 this is something that that teams struggle with, and I, I'm, what I'm hearing, I think Namita's not going to be able to talk about it, but <laughs> I'm hearing that she's coming up with more sophisticated ways of dealing with this. I mean, it's not hard to. I mean, this I have heard nothing from Namita, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. <laughs> and we were talking about this with a team last weekend. Wouldn't it be nice to have a big simulation, essentially, that get, that you're updating continuously, so at any given moment you can look at your forecast for where a player will go or you can flip it around and ask for any given position in the draft you can get your forecast for the players that will be available and teams are doing some teams are doing crude versions of that now i mean everyone's doing some crude version of it some are doing more sophisticated but i doubt anyone's doing the kind of simulation that one could do if you have information or at least are willing to speculate on team preferences but isn't there just a decision tree that that really is the ultimately what you want? I mean, uh, so all the branches and given but you where you a are, distribution. It's just a very right. uncertain one of what's what the future branches yeah. are going to look like. So I actually think I will say that I think the the sort of simulation component for like a lot of issues, not even just the draft, is like a really helpful tool to even just like convey the findings. Um, because one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, um, relaying my findings to the public and also to my team, is like. You know, how do you take this sort of probabilistic forecast when you say like 70 percent, 30 percent, 15 percent and actually make it real to people? And one of the ways you can do that is, I think, through simulation. So I'll actually give you like a really silly example. Um, so people love game probability, like playoff odds stuff. Right. So saying and so like a big thing, you know, people keep track of in the NHL is like, how likely is my team to make the playoffs? And one of the things that I actually did to really convey that, I think, more intuitively was through, like, dice. And, and I would say, like, all right, if you roll – so using someone's existing uh, playoff probabilities, I'd say, like, okay, if you roll, like, a 1 and then a 2, that means your team is out. But if you roll, like, a 6 and then a 3, that means your team is in and, and kind of modify that. And a lot of people – found that sort of like simulation exercise really great because you know it's one thing to say oh your team has a 55 percent chance of doing this and then but then it doesn't happen you're like what's up but everyone knows that when you like roll dice and simulate outcomes in that way sometimes it happens sometimes it doesn't it's very compelling we had edge analytics on the show a month or so ago and edge is an organization that's actually worked with the eagles at least according to media reports and other football teams on in-game analytics and what they what one of the things that they use to be more convincing are rich simulations of the game and so you can sit down with the staff and say okay drop in your policies for fourth downs or drop in your policies for um, two-point conversions and let's just play out the games and see how they go and it's a much more compelling way to prevent present your evidence than just saying well that's 55 percent versus 61 yeah. percent i mean no one's interested in 55 <laughs> very few nfl coaches are interested in 55 versus 61. But it's often very difficult to figure out where the randomness is actually coming from. So in the endgame NFL um, strategy, you know where it is because the fourth downs could convert or they could not convert. You can hit those those passes or not. And you can understand, you see the randomness that's there and those cause you to end. But in the draft, it's whether a player turns out one way or another. And we can stand back and think of that as random. Yeah. But it isn't random. It's well, causal. We just we just don't understand it. Well, and, but, and, but, and, and this additional dimension, though, of like other teams' picks and preferences. I mean, 
because you're not going to well, be able to actually right. observe their models and every and their decision making process. That essentially is a random uh, component. Yeah. And as well. we deal with that as statisticians all the time. But that's a very challenging thing for the public to sort of accept because they see this almost rightly. I mean, if you had complete information, it isn't random it's anymore. Yeah. And but it, yet dice is no complete. In, 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 they roll them. And I that's feel that. like most fans have watched their NFL team make enough questionable <laughs> picks over the year that they probably regard it as somewhat of an opaque random process. I don't know. I think people are slow to understand randomness, especially this kind of randomness. Yeah. This, is, this is, is deep. I mean, because we have the same kind of analogy when we talk about political polls. I mean, so if, if the poll says there's a 60% chance that someone's yeah. going to win, the randomness is not in what people prefer. The randomness is in your mechanism to assess that information from the limited data you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I want to come back to this thing we were talking about on this key issue of whether they're willing to trade back and how hard it is to learn in that environment because the simulation really could help the yeah. learning. The reason you can't learn in that environment is because you only get feedback if you don't if you trade back. If you trade back, you can be proven right or wrong. If you don't trade back, you'll never be proven wrong. And so right. you've got yeah. to sell missing. And so right. you actually can't learn that you're wrong in that environment. It's you're kind of I I suspect it's one of the reasons we see so many trades because that's, that doesn't make sense. That's not an equilibrium, actually. It's one of the reasons people are reluctant to trade back, because they never learned. It's hard to learn in that environment, and a simulation could address that. Yeah. I mean, so so the, the example that I gave you from a couple years ago where you say, like, I, I think this guy that the Bruins took would have been available in the second round. I have no way of proving of that. Right. Um, it's just, you know, uh, based on sort of pre-draft rankings and, and other uh, kind of signals we're talking to Namita Nadakumar. Namita is a graduating senior here at Penn, and we don't randomly pick graduating seniors to sit down with us. We're talking with <laughs> Never you. have, actually. We're, we've had students, but not undergraduate students. And we're talking to Namita for two reasons. One, she's been one of the outstanding stat students over the last few years and is going to work. She's already been working as an intern for the Eagles and the NFL, and she's working to work full-time. When she graduates from here in just a few months, she'll be working with the Eagles. We should point out that uh, saying she's an outstanding stats student is actually a real accomplishment. Um, years ago, and Eric Bradlow was the only graduating stats student at the Wharton School of Business. And, of course, he was the outstanding one. That was in, back in 1988. We had one, the competition is fiercer now for we outstanding. We had one graduating stat uh, major here at Wharton. We called them concentrators at the time. There was That's one, am- and it was Eric Bradlow. It's amazing that there was just one, and it's even more ridiculous that it was Eric. Really? <laughs> of course. That was right, of course. And, and today, Eric's done it all. You have to know that. <laughs> Today we have uh, graduated 100 stat concentrators Amen. and 100 business analytics majors and 50 stat minors from the university at large. That. And we expect that to double within the next couple of years. World's mm-hmm. coming to you, Adi. Yeah, except it. So, and so we'll throw this out as, a, as an announcement. If you have a, a, a resume for a PhD level statistician, applied statistician in particular, please send them our way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for teaching purposes? Yeah. For teaching yeah. purposes, yes. Yeah. I, can, I might be able to help with that. This is that, good. That, it's, this, yeah. we, need, we need more of those folks, especially on applied, because there's only way to, one way to learn how to do these things. That's, it's like a foreign language. You can't learn That's it right. by reading it in a book. You've got to do the thing. Mm-hmm. We need more of that. Namita, on that front, wh- what have you found most valuable in developing your, your stat skills? I mean, absolutely what you just said. I think research, yeah, if there are any sort of uh, undergrad or even high school students who might be listening to this, research is unequivocally like the best way. What do you mean by research? So, um, I mean, that can take on the form of a lot of different things. So the the first two years of my undergrad career, I was a research assistant um, on like actually projects that um, Eric um, interfaces with related to like customer analytics. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that helped me sort of build up the skills related to research, um, some that you might expect relating to like analyzing things, but also a lot of like just the ability to go get data and clean it up and mm-hmm. work with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the my junior and senior years, I started to be able to kind of conceptualize projects and actually try to do them. Mm-hmm. And and that was, I mean, that was like the biggest thing for me is just to, because then anytime you're, you're working on a skill or a new model um, or anything, you know that the sort of end game is this thing that you really love or are really interested in. And for me, that was this draft project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was absolutely the way that I learned a lot of what I learned. What do you think it is that the Eagles saw in you to hire you to begin <laughs> with as an intern? And then as an intern, how did you prove your merit inside the organization? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, we can ask Alec. We'll, we'll, we'll compare <laughs> your answer to Alec's answer. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the the draft work, there is sort of an obvious, like, like I said, the drafts are very similar. They're both seven rounds there's I think a bigger positional component in the NFL one um, so maybe a little more complexity there but um, I think if you asked Alec he would probably just say he liked the the sort of strategic a- aspect of it and mm-hmm. the fact that I mean I, I was trying to go beyond so I think a lot of existing draft research that I'd seen at least um, was coming at it from a very like academic sort of top-down perspective of like how good is the league overall let's say Mm -hmm. kind of rank ordering these players and Mm -hmm. and seeing how well they'll do and I was curious like okay but if you're a team you don't really necessarily care about that you care about how well your team is going to do Mm -hmm. um, in relation to all of these other teams and so I think that that perspective is compelling I think like no matter the sport Um, and then you know, I think uh, like my research skills have served me well um, in the last few months because when you're going into any environment, be it, be it a team or be it not a team, um, they don't want to have to hold your hand mm-hmm. um, in order for you to create value. Mm-hmm. So just being able to conceptualize new research projects essentially and, and stating why I think it has value for the mm-hmm. organization was, I think, really key. Real quickly and very close to the ground, can you tell us what tools you're using, what, what languages you're using, what are the what are the tools of your trade right now? You, you're the next generation. <laughs> so what, This is also an advertisement to future yeah. stat concentrators, but majors, um, and, stat and analysts. A, and advice to people who are trying to get going in the field. What are the necessary or what, what have you found useful? What are your go-to tools? So <clears throat> every day of my life, I use R. So that is unequivocally what I would say. Tidyverse. Uh, I mean, I'm getting particular, but this is a, <laughs> this is a discussion I'm having with my PhD yes, students. Yes, I love I love the tidyverse. Um, in particular, I'm a big fan of ggplot yeah. for data visualization. Um, as Shane is well aware, I care a lot about the way that my graphs look. Yeah. Um, and, well, real quickly, and they're stunningly beautiful. This is, this, this is technical, but it matters. Yeah. So so. This is. I mean, I was listening. We had a. We had a. Namita actually was there. We had a uh, kind of a, a final uh, um, lunch for our uh, undergraduate sort of sp- baseball research seminar that we ran this past year. And so one of the criticisms I asked. I asked for it was, "What don't we teach?" And the thing that we don't teach is data visualization. Fantastic. I was about to say no. this is not just a matter of aesthetics. And it's not just making Shane happy yeah. with it. it looks pretty. <laughs> it's understanding your data better. And people are far too quick to go straight to the regression. You need to spend some time looking at your data. Absolutely. I mean. You know, I think people just like to build models just for the sake of building models. But I mean, if you think about regression, what is it? But like 
it's fitting a line. So if you don't see a line to be fit, mm-hmm. you shouldn't fit a line, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so R is your go-to. Yeah. What else? Um, so <clears throat> kind of on the back end uh, for, for data, like SQL mm-hmm. is very... Uh, I think a, a helpful and easy skill to acquire that a lot of companies, companies have them. So, so when you're at the Eagles, when you were working at, independently in hockey, you didn't deal with SQL. No, um, and uh, part of the actually I did to some extent, but part of the reason I didn't was just because I think draft data is on a relatively smaller scale. But I did have like the ability to to use it for like if I was looking at in-game events or something like that. Um, and then um, I've used Python a little bit, but I think like it's sort of you know, not an absolute necessity for okay. at least that I've seen right now, but um, it can only help. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of interesting models that um, can potentially be easier to fit in Python or R, depending on what they are, basically. So, mm-hmm. what's your experience and impressions of statistical analysis in the real world versus in the academic world? <laughs> so, you spent a few months now interning with the Eagles. You've been through the draft process. We're not asking for any hidden secrets on those guys, but in general. <laughs> Like, how different is it for you to go work for Alec than to do a project for Shane? Well, I mean, so I think the biggest thing is the timeline. Um, So, like, the draft was not going to move depending on how far along I was in my analysis, whereas I can email Shane and be like, I'm not going to get this done by (laughs) Friday. And I I can email the journal and be like, can we have another couple weeks on that paper? (laughs) And they'll say yes, yeah. So, I mean, that that is sort of an obvious thing that jumps to mind. And then, you know, with that, I think I've definitely learned that, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. So one thing I will say that the the Mm. graphs that I've made um, at the Eagles have not been as stunningly beautiful as I would like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but they have shown what they needed to show. um, And then we sort of move on uh, to something so that like kind of just got to get it done um, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it obviously it does have to be sort of like theoretically and analytically sound and, and all of that. Um, and, and then, like I said, I think, um, the sort of example I gave related to like draft analyses, uh, kind of is really relevant because, you know, like what's your perspective here is your perspective to just sort of like learn things in, in a kind of very descriptive way, um, about how these processes work. Um, in these leagues, or is your um, goal to extract excess value, um, and and that leads to to very different perspectives and very different goals and very different like modes of analysis. So what what do you see the NFL? What's the what's the frontier in the NFL, in NFL analytics right now? What, what's what's the the, mar- the greatest value margin teams are are working on? Well, I think I would say that it is the draft, and and I am very like biased obviously but i mean i haven't seen let's push you on that for just a little bit because if you look at how now again i'm going to do one of these league-wide things that you're panning a little bit but if you look at (laughs) if you look at the relation between where a guy is drafted and how he performs in the nfl over time that relation has been basically steady for 40 years the draft order correlates with the performance performance almost the same at the same so at least as a league the draft order isn't getting any more predictive. And that doesn't indict the league. That is what we like to say is irreducible uncertainty. Are, are we at the limit? Where is the limit and how it's close are we? Yeah, how close are we to just rolling dice at this point? I mean, I, I think one thing I, I would say is like looking at the ways in which, you know, you would sort of evaluate that value, um, which is difficult for the NFL, um, especially 
without sort of like player tracking data. Well, I mean, I will have it, but other people won't. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I hate that. I love it. You, but, let's but, just, let's but, just unpack this. I will have that data. But you, hey, looking at me, and you, and Shane, won't have that well, data. Well, worse, that's what the NFL office has been telling teams that's for right. the last couple of years. They're only just now that's opening true, up to yeah. giving the teams. But Namita's telling us that, well, yeah, fine, but we've got this new, rich source of data that's entirely different than anyone's ever had before. Right. And there's real potential there. I will also point out, and just to, to comment on your observation that the correlation hasn't changed, that's really the first two rounds. So the NFL draft is seven, and there's... It's only going to be worse later. So, well, the correlation... Actually, the correlation should get, get bigger because there's more variance. The first, so the point is the first two rounds has, has more compressed variance in player quality. So it is an irreducible variance. Well, there's the first a bigger variation a, from 1 to, to 210 than there is from 1 to 60. I'm not sure. That's not necessarily true. More variation, more data? Ex ante, no way, because there's that right tail. Well, this is... Uh, this is ex, now, we're, ex post. So, uh, I'm, 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 I'm making a forecast, <laughs> and we can discuss it. Yeah. This is an over-under. So then, the forecast, so, I'm trying to make I a think, forecast of between one and... The, forecasting the performance of the, all seven rounds is going to be... Um, will have more information in it than the uh, than the first six. I, th I think we're probably going to have to hash this out for the last half hour of the show. But before, <laughs> while, we still, while we still have Namita, I want to hear about your perspective on the playoffs, or the NHL playoffs right uh, now. The NHL. Yes. Back to NHL. And, <laughs> just I mean, like three people think about this. And, and so uh, I think... Um, I mean, I, I'm pretty excited about the series that are going on right now, especially that Capitals Penguin series. Yes. What do you, uh, I mean, I know you're. <laughs> oh, she's a Cap, Caps fan, right? Well, no. Every, every, everybody's a Caps fan right now. I think the Penguins are basically little, the Patriots of the NHL. This so. is a little goof uh, that I like to play. So, I mean, so one of the things that makes me very happy, I will say, in, in a very genuine note, um, is that um, while I am sort of working in football, I can say not much about that. Um, I'm free to continue like hockey work and, and talking about that publicly and trying to advance that, which I think um, is really sort of compelling to me and, and really one of the things that I look forward to continue doing. Mm -hmm. um, and on that note, one of the things I look forward to continue doing is root against the Pittsburgh Penguins. <laughs> How come? What's, 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 the, what's the hate? I don't. I, this is only a show that runs until 10 a.m. Like, yeah. I don't have time to like, <laughs> unpack that. Um, but so that is why I'm I'm technically a Cavs fan now because they are playing uh, in the second round. Uh, one thing I mean that some people are very angry about and some people are sort of not that angry about is the fact that uh, in the Western and Eastern conferences you do have the top two teams playing each other now right. yeah. rather than in the next round. The lack of reseeding is very odd. I think yeah. as a playoff structure. But so I have I think a, a sort of like higher level take on this, which is like. Who cares? Because the playoffs itself are an institution built on like unfairness, because the whole point is to take everything that happened in the regular season, 82 games of hockey, where the best team did establish themselves and be like, OK, we're going to do some series and see who gets the mm -hmm. Stanley Cup. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think at the point at which you're accepting that. Um, you have to sort of accept that, like, seating and, like, other weirdness will happen. In the, like, I and, don't know. And I actually kind of like it, too, in the sense that, I mean, if if I had a top team, I would probably dislike it because it's sort of, you know, I mean, right, it, it's the whole point. The one of, one of the outcomes, whether it's the intent, one of the outcomes of that kind of structure is there's more randomness, therefore, to who gets paired up and, and therefore, who advances in the playoffs. And mm -hmm. I think that's kind of nice. I mean, we... 
you know, you I, need, I, 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 I over-belabor this point, but every week I come in, I'm like, well, it's going to be LeBron against the Golden State Warriors or Houston, right. the finals, the NBA, and I'm going to be right. And I've been <laughs> right for like four years. You want the and NBA. Does, you would prefer the NBA, not Reese, just to add some randomness to it. Yeah, I mean, I think probably there's enough kind of built in structurally to the game of basketball that makes it, you know, inherently less random than hockey. But uh, but I think, yes, the NBA could do more to promote kind of randomness in the playoffs if they wanted that. Let's play shorter games, shorter yeah. series. They used to play five-game series yeah. early on. Yeah, right? and, 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 and like, the NHL, when I was grow- growing up, well, the first round of the NHL was only a five-game series mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So, Namita, what else do you pay attention to in the playoffs? So this is the other end of the season for you. It's not the draft, but like what? Who, who other than pulling it against the pens, what do you care about right now? <laughs> I mean, so one of the the most interesting storylines, I was like, I hope they don't ask about this, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, because I guess it's just too weird not to talk about, is the Las Vegas Golden Knights um, and their kind of historic, beautiful run. People should be talking more about this. An expansion (laughs) team looks like a Stanley Cup favorite. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Is this because of the structure of the availability of players that they managed to acquire? I mean, we can sort of retroactively say that that's the case, but the honest to God truth is at the time of the expansion draft, and I like watched it and remember everyone talking about it, everyone thought that this was going to be a team that was just going to be a bottom feeder in wow. the NHL. Mm-hmm. So wow. based on the picks, and, and so I will say that people knew that they were getting like a few good players. So there were some players, I think James Neal comes to mind, uh, even sort of March or so, um, from the Panthers, uh, they knew that there were some teams that were sort of cap-strapped enough that, like, they get some good players, they got some great picks, but one of the things about picks in the NHL is you don't see those players pan out for at least two to three years mm-hmm. uh, in most cases. Um, so, but I think f- for this team, you know, after the fact of the expansion draft, you sort of thought that the best-case scenario was, like, in a few years, once those picks pan out, like, they could start to contend for the playoffs. So what's your explanation? this is like one of the strangest things uh which is that i've talked to a lot of people about this and like everyone's explanation is like they play really hard which is even sort of people who you know live and die by analytics um and and if you watch them they're a very fast team they don't let you breathe at all um but I mean, I guess there is um, an argument for, like, building a team off of spite, which is that, like, every... (laughs) Every single person on that team was not wanted by their team. Yeah, exactly. So they're like, ah, we'll show them all. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that certainly hasn't been the case in previous expansion sort of situations, but... Yeah, who knows? It doesn't work in baseball. It it could actually also be, I mean, the biggest explanation besides just sort of working hard is, is... could just be randomness. It could be, but is it? Do you think irreducible? It's safe? Is it? Is it safe? Is it? Is it possible that that hockey is the sport of the four major ones that has the biggest return to effort? Oh, that's an interesting Ooh. question. I'm going to claim that. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Okay. Can you can you just Meaning, toss this out? So let's say that let's say that the hockey players on this team, the the, the expansion Vegas team, are playing fifty percent harder <laughs> than the average NHL player, and then let's ask the impact of that. Versus the impact if the name a bad team it's in baseball, certainly a the, bad team I mean, in basketball. I mean, it's it's un, it's un, you know unambiguously the fastest moving kind of uh, sport. The, uh, but you're also so. saying that the other teams don't play hard. 
Well, no, I'm saying if, if you were, I think he's saying they, they're not Max all the time. Yeah. This is they're humans. Yeah. yeah. To the extent that teams differ yeah. in their amount yeah. to of the extent, effort, if it's true, um, it, teams, it translates more into kind of an outcome in hockey I've than got other that sports. Hype for sure, I've got that hypothesis. It has to be either <laughs> hockey or basketball, and yeah. I'm going to say. Because you have to shoot a basketball versus just beat a puck around. <laughs> well, here's, if, if there's any, if there's that's any, not fair. I know beat a puck around. Can I, can around. I toss out a couple of well, in, you can't information? Run in, you can't run people over in basketball as his <laughs> as so and so from the Heat learned last yeah. week. Well, let me let me throw out two pieces of information to confirm that. So, if you rank the four major sports in terms of greatest home field advantage, the two are number one is hockey, and then it's a. Uh, and you think that's related to, to effort? effort? I think it's returned to effort. That's interesting. We've got, we've got. There's, mm-hmm. we can learn this. Maybe, well, the player tracking stuff is some way to tack, tap into effort. So, Namita, by the way, something I've always want to know that we want player tracking information on players in regular season hockey games, playoff hockey games, playoff game sevens, and then playoff game seven overtime. Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> we want, we want, we want overtime player tracking data from the NHL just to see the change in effort, and it's gonna, it's gonna show how much yep. up. How much ceiling there actually is on effort beyond beyond the average. So, I mean, hopefully uh, the NHL does get on that and, and at least disseminates that information, t- like gets that started because, um, I mean, I think they are definitely the lead that's lagging behind. Yeah. Right, uh, right. And, and, with, and with so much potential. Fantastic. We're going to go to break now. Thank you, Namita Nandakumar. Namita, it's been delightful to have you in the studio. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. That's Namita Nanda Kumar. She's a graduating Wharton senior going to work for the Philadelphia Eagles in their analytics department. A strong department already. About to get stronger. All right. That's three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We've got a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. That's Dion Simpkins bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. Dion, associate producer, Dion Simpkins in the studio today. Always glad to see Dion. With some ZZ Top. ZZ Top. Dion back there with his orange Beats by Dre showing off. We've got our Radio Shacks on in, in here. He's got his Beats on over there. Dion's usually in the back this time of day, still kind of warming up. Someone drug him out. Someone drug him out and put him to work. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane and Audie. We've got just off with Namita Nandikumar. Namita is fantastic young analyst um, in the world of hockey and professionally now in the world of football. Great to hear a little bit about her journey. Going to be curious to follow her going yeah. forward. She's going to work for the Eagles for Alec Hallaby, one of the top young analysts in the NFL who works for Howie Roseman, one of the top GMs in the NFL. So she's got herself in a good. We talk about Lamar Jackson landing in a good spot with yeah, the Ravens. Here's yeah. Namita landing I mean, not, in a good not, spot. As a fa- I mean, it is a great spot for him. So as, as a fan of Lamar Jackson, I'm actually very happy for him. As a <laughs> Patriots. I mean, I'm not happy that this, you know, great, quarterback great that I analysts. very much value went to a, you know, a, a potential team that almost always seems to challenge for. Right. They're set up pretty well. They're yeah. set up pretty well. I'm no, I mean the Ravens are. I mean, you know, people talk about the Patriots because of all their sustained success, but the Ravens for the entire my entire lifetime watching football has always they've always been there. I mean, they don't always make the playoffs. Sometimes they miss out on the playoffs in dramatic fashion. Kind of like Baltimore in the in, in, in the in the uh, baseball. Also, right up there, never winning. Well, the Ravens well, have won. The, the Ravens have won. How many times have the Orioles made the playoffs in my life? They, they're always competing. They're 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 they've been a very good team in the last five years. Okay, yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm looking farther back with the Ravens. But, it, yeah, yeah, in the NFL, I mean, yeah, I think yeah. with the NFL, you have to judge ownership essentially over I don't know 
a decade yep. more. You probably need yeah. more than 10 years. And over that period of time, good franchises do stand out. And you could name them. They're the obvious ones. But the Steelers, the Ravens, the Pats, the Eagles, mm-hmm. these teams are good more often than not. And in the running more often than not. And that's just not what you see if you look across all 32. And that's because there's differences in ownership, dramatic differences yeah. in ownership, more than people expect. And it's it's something that probably fans don't like to hear, that ownership makes such a big difference, because it's something that if you have a bad or there's literally nothing you nothing can do you can about do it. it. I mean, so, if you're a Knicks fan, you should, you should move. You should yeah, pick up a new sport. Yeah, I mean, you're that's just right. hosed. That's right. So I want to get back to the observation you made about irreducer, irreducibility in randomness and the draft. So one explanation for the fact that it doesn't seem to have gotten better, uh, one is that we don't, we're not looking at the right numbers, so that, that could be one. But let's assume that you're right. Is it because teams aren't learning or there isn't anything to learn? Well, I mean, I, I thought by irreducibility, it, it's really just that there's so much randomness to the game, and, and yeah, and, that's and, it, right? So, in other words, it, we there, if you if you correlate the, the the rankings of the players at the draft, and then how they actually perform, that hasn't gotten really better over time. That was the observation that yeah, that, that Kate made earlier. So, one explanation for that could be that you just can't do it. There's just there's just too much randomness, and there's and the other explanation is they're just not getting better at it. And the teams that have been good at it are still good at it. The teams that are bad at it are still bad at it. And things haven't improved because people aren't learning. Yeah, and I mean, I think one you know, one I, thing I, that, I think, real quickly, I'll go. That I think what I mean by the phrase irreducible uncertainty is that. You can't get better than a certain That's level. Right. At some point, it's purely aleatory. You're basically pitching dice. And um, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're real close yeah. and have been real close because teams are getting better. Scouts are getting more sophisticated. Processes are getting more systematic. So then why don't we see an improvement in the rankings with you're, what you're because saying? Right. irreducible uncertainty. Yeah, but over 40 years – I know. You've got it's, to look at a change. I mean, I, I know that we, we could you could say we're close to the edge not, now, but were we 40 years ago? No. Then and, why don't so, we see an increase? Because there's not there to be learned, I guess, is the, is the, that there was the go. alternative you were offering. Yep. And, I, and I agree with that. It's not that they're – I mean, they're getting better at the processes. It's just that they're studying something that can't be forecasted beyond a certain point. And what if we're in a situation where half the teams, say, are actually have actually yeah. gotten way better and are doing better with themselves, and the other half of the teams are – you know, actually getting kind of worse because they're getting taken advantage of by the good teams and stuff like that. And, and you know, in the aggregate over the entire league, we haven't actually improved. So that was, I mean, that's essentially the explanation that things are kind of, there's a lot of we, teams that haven't learned. We can, we can and should look at that. So you can look at, you can look at, are there some teams that are, are even though the aggregate, the correlation's holding steady, there are some teams that are steadily in the top and some teams are steadily in the bottom. And I, I, in my analysis, that's just not the case. That now you're asking a little bit of a different question. Um, you can ask, for example, you know, you basically some form of the analysis of did teams who drafted well last year again draft well this year? And they just don't. I mean, there's just there's a year there's no year to year persistence. And I think your answer that explanation where some teams are getting better and some teams are, are getting worse would predict that there would be some year-to-year persistence, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. What other sports guys? We've done a lot of the NFL draft. We've I could, avoided, do, I could do a lot we've, more. We've avoided baseball. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of I have impressed. not avoided baseball. It's just happened. It just yeah. happened. I mean, yeah. it, you think about baseball, it's a very long season. Yeah. And so, you know, there's always a little bit every week. But we are really starting to heat up. It's early. We're starting to figure out a few things. about. What the, have you figured out? Well, it? a couple things. Are, I mean, there's a couple standouts and a couple things that are predicted that were that are, happened. I mean, so the, the Red Sox were predicted to do good. The Yankees, the, 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 the Astros, and they're, of course, the... Th- I would argue the three mm-hmm. best teams. There were some surprises. So on the positive side, the Mets and the Phillies look much better than anybody expected. Yeah. The, uh, the Diamondbacks. Adi, and I then, sat there with you last week, and they did not look very good at all. No, How, they did. No, they got rocked in the game. They we did get rocked in one but inning. You know what? That's uh, that's the that's the oddity <laughs> of the damn thing. That's baseball. And of course, the Dodgers look terrible. So yeah. and they. Were I mean, the Dodgers the have great... also had some real injury problems, and it looks like so, Seager's out yeah. for the year. So. So yeah, I mean, I Hold mean, on, the I Dodgers did, have had some very bad luck so I had far this missed season. That story that is surprising. Those yeah. guys were projected to be what a top yeah, yeah. three, top, top three yeah. team, and some key injury. Justin Tucker and, and and now Seager's out for the season. Is Tucker out for the year? No, no, he's coming just back. late, late into the yeah. year. He was, for those of you who don't remember, he was the third baseman, the bearded third baseman. Oh, my just goodness. just rocked the playoffs last right. year. I, ha- I have a Turner, 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 sorry. Yeah, Turner. I, I have nothing but memories of him hitting home runs in the <laughs> World Series. You hated facing him. My team's yeah. kept on facing him. I was oh, like, yeah. oh, no, not that guy again. Yeah. How is that guy still uh, up already again? Yeah, yeah exactly. But what's, yeah. what, of course, is, I mean, what a lot of people are talking about are home runs are slightly down, but that's because it was so darn cold, and yeah. and the ball does not travel that much in uh, in cold weather. Um, but, of course, every year we expect things to get more with Strikeouts home runs. are strikeouts up. Strikeouts are up. This is the first year, first April, exciting. that there have been more strikeouts than hits in the history of the game. Yeah. Well, that, is that... How can that be? I mean, it hasn't been for years now. The hitters have been getting the edge, right? Is, right. Or is, am I wrong? No, no, no. It's just no, been it's, spreading it, out. More Ks and more, more home Ks, runs. There's more Ks, more home runs, and okay. fewer hits. Okay. And of course, the and the other thing that goes against hits is these darn shifts. If you if you watch the games and if these you're in darn the, these darn shifts, darn shifts. Well, actually, like Adi's like old, uh, old, <laughs> old man reaction. My old man reaction. Although um, I'm in favor of the it, shifts. It, it begs a question. Actually, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah. All you has the you know are we going to be less? This is not a very empirical question. It's going to be a hard question to answer empirically, but is the game getting less exciting? Because you know, I like, 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 like it's it sort so. of like home home run Isn't versus strikeout. I thought we were already there. Just like, yeah. no, mm. I actually think it's very ex- so. So I yesterday, balls was- and play are kind of exciting. We just don't see those anymore. I no, see. you, you I do see, see they're going to fan, or they're going to knock it over the fence. And right, I mean, happens. like, so it's either strikeout or home run. It's Guys become a little bit too binary or something like that. Or there's. I don't know. I mean, I can't argue so. against I, me I, on I, this. I do think the game is exciting. I mean, there are obviously are lots of balls in play. I mean, strikeouts are are still well less than a third. I mean, they're twenty five percent of the outs. But, yeah, but still, I'm talking about reduced. a trend yeah, here. I mean, I'm talking about they said getting less exciting. I mean, it's not it's not going to go from completely exciting to not at all exciting. Yep. I'm saying, is it getting less exciting as strikeouts go up? I mean, most people are not as excited about strikeouts. Home runs, obviously, everybody's excited about, so that's nice. But the fact that basically there are less balls in play over time, is, is that, that going to make I, it less exciting? I, I, I have it's to say, question. I probably would have to agree. I mean, one yeah. of the things that you watch, so the, the the Yankees and the Astros played last night, and it went eight innings of no score. It was almost a, a modern game in action. The Yankees used five relievers, not by design. Their, their starter got injured in the first inning. And then they kind of went through two, three, one-inning shifts and made it through all nine innings and didn't give, in, give, give up any runs. Verlander was amazing. He had one of his best games of his career, 14 strikeouts. I wonder uh, how no he runs. felt. He's out there pitching six innings. 
innings, and they're rolling out a new. The other side's rolling out a new pitcher every inning or two. He's like, hold yeah. on, hold on. Well, that's exactly. Right. And I was like, I was listening to him, thinking if this goes extra innings, the Yankees are going to be in trouble, right? Because they're they're all they they're, they're, they're using up the staff. But they, it, the the clincher was a, a three run homer. I mean, this is there was no. You don't have this sort of guily way of trying to eke out a run with a bunt, with a slap hit, with a with a baseball. And this is this is the old way of playing, and the new way is just you know. You have these giant uppercutty swings, and they yeah. just go out when they go out. Mm-hmm. So a naive description of that game, unless you're a huge fan of strikeouts, is that nothing happened until there the was one inning. home run in the ninth <laughs> inning. Yeah, that would be a very, very... Um, like, you could probably... Re- again, unless you're just that game to, like, a one-second clip. Okay, but that's but you have taken it too far. At that no, point. I especially because Verlander pitched such a, a jewel. I mean, that's it's, right. It's much more interesting right. to watch one guy go six innings. Also, I just uh, you know as far as masterful. casual fan entrance stuff yeah, like no, happening, men on base, well, is, all this. But type this of is fair. the kind of things that that, that that people who don't follow baseball don't get about it because you can watch a, an impressive pitching display and it's very analytical because the way they move the pitches, mm-hmm. the way they the way they they change the the, the pitch types and the locations. But if you're not a, a, an astute observer, you simply won't appreciate any of it. It'll just look like nonsense to you. And I'm an astute observer. I just part of the reason I love baseball and the reason I argue that's you know because I I've taken many casual fans to games and had to try and argue why thing you just know why, why it's exciting basically. <laughs> um, and I talk about oh well you know of course nothing's happened yet but there's a suspense building up because there's a couple men on base or this yep. type of you can kind of feel things building up towards that an event. Remi- there reminds me of soccer, by the way. Right, that's the way soccer is. You that feel, is the it, way it does soccer build, is. It builds it, it gradually builds, on the pitch. Momentum slowly builds up, but the new kind of baseball. Where it's either strikeout or home I run, see. there's none of that. Susp- there's less of that suspense build up. Interesting. You know? I, th- I think he's telling a compelling. She's saying something compelling here. <laughs> well, it can Look, feel. You, that you way. need men on base. You need yep. you know hits and stuff like that That's for great. this sort of suspense to but build I think, up. I think there's going to be going reaction. On, what's going on with the Cubs? Good. They're, no, they're they're doing they're, well. six, they're sixteen and eleven. That's yeah. That's okay. solid. That's okay, solid. They're projected to. Play at about the same clip for the rest of the season, not quite. And so win their division. And yeah. win their division. They're right in there. And the, the and Nationals are behind. They're they're surprisingly weak. Um, they're playing five hundred ball, yeah. fourteen and, and their and their division uh, is, uh, is terrific. On, yeah, on the bottom end, the, the, the Reds are looking like they might be a historically bad team. Oh, is that right? Yeah, the Reds. I think have won seven games. Yeah, in fact, there was an article Eight in five thirty eight that that pointed out that there are more teams doing horrendously this year than than well, usual. Right. That's uh, they were sort of talking about. How, is is tanking coming to baseball? Yeah, which is an odd thing uh, I mean, because the, the Astros perfected it. Right? Isn't that kind of how they got to where they are? Well, it's common to kind of. Toss off your experts. I mean, I mean, not your experts. Your 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 expensive players, and try to breed a a new group of very young, very inexpensive talent. That's a common activity in baseball, and so it's not like you know. It's essentially what you you just don't buy any good players. You just breed it up through your through your farm system. But I don't know exactly what the word tanking means in well, baseball. It, the way well, I understand right. it, yeah, in basketball. I mean, because it's in, in basketball. No well, well, there is a draft, but it's but just it's sort not, of like so far out that like yeah. So I mean, the kind of quote unquote benefits of tanking in baseball are much more immediate oh. and obvious that you get like these really high draft picks and i guess that's the same fo- way in football and hockey but um, a draft pick in baseball is just not that is i mean there's so much more valuable in football to your immediate success yes than uh, in the, baseball. The, it, ba- football football and basketball are the ones where dra- you know the tanking gives you a very immediate you know high round mm-hmm. draft pick and that person can kind of walk on to your team and 
potentially provide immediate dividends. Hockey, you're talking a few years out, and baseball, you're talking even more years out. Fellas, as we turn into the last few minutes and hit the home stretch, we have our final segment of the day. It's Wharton Moneyball's Over Under. All right, this is where we take a few suggestions from friends and family, from Twitter followers on good over under questions. So I've got a I've got a list here, guys, to go through. Uh, a lot of it's football. You won't be too surprised. But before we get to football, let's do a little bit more baseball. How many more no hitters between now and the end of the year? We're going to set the over under at one and a half. One and a half no hitters for the remainder of the year. What do you think? Over or under? Well, so so uh, kind of fun information. So I mean, I've just got this uh, you know fact here. Like, so there's been one already. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One in sorry. One one in twenty seventeen. One in twenty sixteen. Seven in twenty fifteen. Right, and we've so, had a zillion go and in. Three hundred in total. Yeah, three hundred in the history of the league. We had we had a bunch go late into games this year already. This is what's been kind of notable this year. We've had fourteen no hitters go into the sixth inning, and there are only twenty four all of last year so, go that far. So three hundred total. So like you know, like about two and a half per season yeah. if you kind of average overall. Although I hate totals because the baseball before nineteen ten, nineteen twenty was a very different game. Yeah. Um, so it's hard hard to know. But I'm I'm if you allow me to start, I'm actually going to take a bold predict position and go oh. over. Okay. I don't know if that's bold, but I, I'm actually going to go over, and that's predicated on the on what I'm seeing, which is a lot of really extraordinary pitching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, again, this sort of strikeout versus home run thing. I think and, it kind of lends itself to no hitters. To and be honest. we we didn't uh, you didn't qualify it as a as an individual pitcher no hitter. It could Ooh. be just a team no hitter. And how and many of those do we have? Those yeah, happen. Those They're happening more and more. They hmm. are rare, but the idea is that you take a, a guy as a no hitter through the seventh, and you're just not adverse hmm. to just taking him out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So have the players adapted to that yet, or are they bitter if that happens? <laughs> yeah, they're oh, bitter. Yeah, they're be bitter. I, I they're can't bitter. see any starting pitcher liking that at all. No. So real quickly, I'll give you one more baseball. Real yeah. quickly, how many more MVPs for Mike Trout? One and a half. Oh, over. Over. Under. over. Over. He's the best mm-hmm. baseball player I've ever watched. And he's so young, right? Yeah. How can, this seems a little low, one and a half. Is yeah, that seems, yeah, that seems agree, low Addy? to me. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Um, it's it's tempting to go over on that. It's hard to pull the under, but, to. but uh, how many years has he been in baseball? Four, how five. Many, how many he started M- twenty. He's how many MVPs has he won? won two, and yeah. he, people claim he deserved all five. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's jumping back to the draft. How many Super Bowl appearances from these top quarterbacks that were taken this year? The four top quarterbacks: Mayfield, Darnold, Allen, and Rosen. Super How many Bowl Super Bowl appearances, appearances from oh, those wow. career well, One of them is career the, with appearances. the Jets, so you got to count that as well. Well, I mean, they've all um, gone to bad. They've all s- gone to bad teams by construction. We're going to set the over under at four and a half. That's a lot. Wow, that's a lot of that's a lot of Super Bowl appearances. I, I'm going to go under on that. Yeah. What uh, do you think, Kate? Before I, I say, I my... think it's so easy to go under on that. I mean, not dramatically easy. I don't. Th- I think four and a half is the wrong number. I right. mean, even um, you know any you know good quarterbacks that aren't like you know. The Super Bowl is just really hard to get to. They in general. Are, how, many, how many quarterbacks have had? You know, how many quarterback appearances? You know, pick any five K- quarterbacks. Am I, am I wrong on this? But I would say two of these four is, are going to complete washout. Yeah, I'll go with that. I can't say yeah, which, but right, two of them right. forget. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I think that's, that's right. fair. Okay, staying with NFL quarterbacks, how many more years will Big Ben be a starting quarterback for the Steelers? This, this comes a great from a, our, our Twitter, yeah. our Twitter follower at stat underscore Ron asked this All question. Right, so he's how old? Big Ben, thirty-seven. He's he's ancient. Yeah, what he, thir, thir, he's definitely he's he's older. He's, 30, he's, he's talked 30, about retirement for the last couple years, seasons. So thirty six years old. Of course, the Steelers took 
the Oklahoma State quarterback, Mason Rudolph, this yeah. year with their round three. So over under at two and a half years. Will Big Ben still be quarterback in the Steelers? I don't think. I mean, he has had injuries up and down for the last couple of seasons. I mean, I'll, I don't think he's going to make it three years. So you're under as a starting. I'm under, yeah. yeah. He, I'm Shane's under. under. I'm under. Shane's under. I'm under. I'm gonna, you know, paradoxically, I'm gonna go over. I think conditionally that your 36 is still playing very well. Oh, we have to come back to that idea. There's a there's oh, a fundamental a good, idea there. Yeah, that we'll come I like back that. To, so. I like that. Okay, that which we've seen happen for a long time is apt to last for a long time. Yeah, and that's. I mean, I was was I was was short on Brady after all. He was 39, and I did not predict him to do well this year because. Almost everybody does yeah. poorly their 40th year, but conditionally they did well the 39 year. We're, on the, we're on the clock here. Last one, quickly. Number of wins for the Cleveland Browns this year, over under five and a half. Under. <laughs> under. He uh, jumped. You go. Cade, what's yours? They've done like one and zero the last two yeah, seasons, right? I think right? they might have been better than those numbers, though. Okay. What? How good is five and a half? It's still not very good. Six, six, six and ten, is that a good season? Uh, I mean, for the Browns, that's one of the best things. That's well, a, that's the a really the good San number. Francisco that's a 49ers number. went from zero or one to six I'm gonna go. with a change of a quarterback. What are they going to Who's Baker going to play as a rookie? No, Tyron's no. going to play. I'm going to go over. I'm going to go over five wow. and a half for the Browns. All right. Nice. I'm going okay. under. I'm just going mean, to go under. I don't, I don't like the Steelers gonna, or the I'm Ravens, say so I like I'm the going under. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Guys. Another two hours here at Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday. Zip by. A lot of fun. So for Adi, for Shane, for me, Cade Massey, for Dion Simpkins on the board, for Maddie Datz running the show in the back. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week. Come back and join us. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.